now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In the fourth episode of our Medical Legal Death Investigation special release season, Just Science interviews John Fudenberg, the coroner for Clark County, where he discusses the tragic events of the 2017 concert shooting in Las Vegas and the aftermath that followed. This episode will focus on lessons learned and how other coroner offices can prepare now for unforeseen incidents. John Fudenberg also stresses the importance of knowing who to contact and how critical a family assistance center can be for victims, families, responders, and scene investigators during a mass casualty event. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with NIJ's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. And today we are continuing our work and looking at the medical legal death investigation system and some of the challenges faced by coroners and medical examiners around the country. We're going to be looking at a very particular event that occurred in Las Vegas, Route 91 Harvest Music Festival mass shooting. Our guest is John Fudenberg, who is the coroner of the Clark County Office of the Coroner and Medical Examiner. John has been with Clark County since 2003 and is a recognized leader in medical legal death investigation. He runs one of the largest systems doing medical legal death investigations in the United States, covering 8,000 square miles, including a very wide uh, cross-section of forensic pathologists, and other professionals who support the medical legal death investigation system in Clark County. Welcome to the program, John. Thank you, John. Uh, Thank you for spending some time talking about this. I appreciate it. I imagine even though you have been working in the coroner's office for 15 years that the incident related to the music festival has got to be by far the most serious incident that uh, Las Vegas has faced during your time in the uh, coroner's office and perhaps even historic. Was there any precedent for what happened at the Harvest Music Festival for Clark County at all? No precedent here in Clark County for it, but certainly, uh, unfortunately, around the country, they've had some pretty large mass fatality incidents. So there's certainly best practices and some examples that we tried to pull from as we had to respond to this incident. To give folks a, some kind of context for the level of work that they are, are faced with on a daily basis, in Clark County in 2017, there were 4,509 forensic exams of which 271 uh, had findings of homicide, 485 of suicide and 1,436 accidents, of which 583 were overdoses. Now, I'm seeing six board-certified forensic pathologists who work in Clark County. Is that the correct number? Or Yes, we have six funded positions. In addition to those six, though, we have 14 board-certified forensic pathologists who are locum tenens in our office, which means they come here on a part-time basis, and they're they fly in from all over the country and help our doctors with their caseload. So we actually have nearly 20 board-certified forensic pathologists that work here in our system. 
and an additional 28 ABMDI certified coroner investigators. Right. And uh, I assume that those individuals played a fairly major role with respect to your response on this particular incident. Sure, absolutely. Everybody in our office played a, such a significant role. It's hard to really focus on one of the groups, but what the what the investigators did is is they had the responsibility of recovering the decedents from the from the scene and and the the five local hospitals that uh, ended up having patients die and and staffing the family assistance center which is uh, as you would imagine is a very difficult process they're the folks that make the death notification so here in Clark County one of our statutory responsibilities is to not only identify the decedents but we're responsible for making the notification to the next of kin you know I'm very lucky we have an amazing staff here and and they do an amazing job and when you when you I can't imagine going into an event like this where you don't have a solid staff so it I couldn't have done it without them and we just they really pulled together and stepped up and everybody here in our office whether it was the administrative staff the forensic staff the doctors or our medical legal investigators they just did an amazing job so we're uh, recording this particular podcast on September 27th of 2018, and that's the stage, as it were, for this. This occurred on the 1st of October. It was an open-air music festival. It had over 22,000 attendees, 2,000 vendors and employees, 17 and a half acres of the entire site. Uh, there were off-duty public safety people of all sorts, of course, and already on site during the event before anything else had happened. There were 50 personnel from the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, as well as EMS personnel and and other folks. So this was a a major event already, even before the shooting occurred. So what happened, and we're not going to go into too much detail with this, but, you know, the shooter broke out uh, two windows from a hotel suite on the 32nd floor and shot more than 1,100 rounds into the crowd below over a period from 10.05 10.05 p.m. to 10.16 p.m. and left 58 dead and over 800 injured before killing himself. Apparently had gone to some trouble in terms of planning this out. So, John, can you tell us anything more in terms of kind of setting the context for the actual incident and this individual who uh, was the shooter? Sure. There's a lot of unique uh, aspects to this incident. You know, one is just the number of victims, right? We had nearly 25,000 people at the the venue when the gunfire broke out. So you instantly have 25,000 victims, which kind of makes it a whole different dynamic from other shootings in the country that may have had, you know, certainly significant, but may have had a couple hundred victims. So when you have 25,000 victims, there's a whole lot of complexity that goes into that. And it's just a, it's a much more difficult process to provide services for and and to try to figure out who everybody is. So that's one of the the unique aspects of this that kind of sets it apart from other incidences. And the other thing is the, the motive, you know, nobody has established a motive for this shooter and which again adds to the conspiracy theorists and and adds to you know maybe the confusion and anxiety that people have that they really don't know why this guy did it and it's something that he planned for a long time and and when you look at it it's very hard to prevent something like that yeah the victims were scattered not only at the scene but also to emergency response. So 
there were five different hospitals where the deceased victims had been taken. So there were victims who were deceased at the various emergency facilities, as well as also the scale with respect to your response was truly across the entire city of Las Vegas in terms of trying to understand what was happening with the victims and what you needed to do as a coroner's office to respond. Definitely. I mean, one of the responsibilities that we had here at the coroner's office, which I will tell you is not a good idea, and it's something that we as a community are going to change, but we have the responsibility of setting up a family assistance center here in our community, and that's such a big part of it as I talk to other people in the medical legal community about our lessons learned, because certainly there were a lot of lessons learned that we can take away from this incident but is to focus on the Family Assistance Center, you know, trying to determine who has the responsibility for family assistance in the community and then making sure that they're all working together to figure out what each individual agency's role is during, a, you know, the aftermath of an incident like this so they can talk about it before it happens. The last thing you want to have happen is to try to figure that out after a shooting. We were very lucky. We had our Clark County Emergency Management, who is within the Clark County Fire Department, come in and assist us in setting up the Family Assistance Center, and they just did a great job in helping us. We couldn't have done it without them, and that's the lesson learned, is there's no way that a coroner or medical examiner, I don't care who you are in the country, maybe with the exception of the two largest, the LAs and the New York City, and those are the two largest in the country, maybe they can set it up on their own, but nobody else can, and I'm convinced of that. So I always tell people, focus on the Family Assistance Center and setting that up, because we all, for the most part, know how to recover decedents from scenes. I mean, it's going to be difficult when you have this many and we also know how to do the forensic examinations, right? We do that every day, so people know how to do that. Again, very difficult when you have this volume, but it's the Family Assistance Center, which is something that people really don't know how to do. And that's something that I take away is to have people focus on that deployment area and responding to an incident because it's something we just don't do every day. Yeah, and part of the problem, of course, too, is that when you have this kind of scale, you need to be able to focus in on the things that are really the deep part of your everyday mission. And like you say, the things you do well, when the incident occurred, it was on a weekend, right? Um, it was. It was Sunday night. And you're probably relaxing at home, you know, expecting to uh, have a fairly quiet end to your weekend and not expecting to have to deal with uh, you know, the scale of this kind of, of of an incident. From your perspective as the coroner of the county, hearing about this, I mean, what were the, the actions that you were able to put in place in the early hours and days that you feel really made the most difference in terms of you all being able to make a, an effective response? First of all, backing up a moment, I wish I was relaxing at home and, and went into that evening with some rest. But on the contrary, I went to my very first, uh, Las Vegas got a, their first professional team, and it's the Golden Knights hockey team. Oh. And I went to my very first hockey game that night at 5 p.m., and it was a special day because of that. And I grew up in Minnesota and played hockey all my life, and I was very excited to go. And so I was actually in an Uber on my way home because parking down there is very difficult. So I was in an Uber on my way home when the shooting happened. And the other aspect to that is I actually had planned on going to that concert after the hockey game. A friend of mine had tickets and 
fortunately now looking back he couldn't make it to the hockey game so therefore we weren't able to go to the concert so he the fact that he had to miss the hockey game may have saved my life which I'm very grateful for but I was in an Uber on the way home when I got the call and one of the things that we've been very fortunate here at least in our office is that we've for some reason I don't I think other than the obvious we've done a lot of training and exercising for mass fatality incidences. And I think the biggest thing that helped us, at least in a certain part of it, was a, we had a family assistance center full-scale exercise. And when I say full-scale, people in the business know what a full-scale exercise is versus a tabletop or something like that. It's a big deal, a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of planning. And we had a full-scale family assistance center exercise in 2009 that proved to be very beneficial because we had a good idea of what we needed to do in responding to that because the Family Assistance Center for us in the coroner medical examiner world isn't what most people think it is. Most people think a Family Assistance Center is somewhere where families will go and get, you know, shelter and food and money so they can continue living their life where that is, it does transition to that. But in the first couple days following that, the process that usually occurs in the Family Assistance Center is the process of of identification and, and us at the coroner medical examiner's offices meeting with the families and collecting information from them and giving them some information at the same time. But ultimately, it doesn't really have much to do with the determination of cause and manner necessarily. In an airline incident, it's usually an accident. In a shooting like this, it's usually a homicide. So that part of it is is somewhat automatic, but becomes an, an exercise of identification. So we spend the first you know, in this incident, we spent the first three or four solid days doing nothing but meeting with families and trying to identify the decedents. And that's, as you would imagine, not an easy situation when you have a venue with 25,000 people out there and there's no list of who they are. And we've just got to start from scratch and figure out who everybody is. And then once we do identify them, then the next step for us is the notification process. So that's also done within the Family Assistance Center. So the identification of the decedents and then the notification of their next of kin is something that keeps us occupied for a, quite a long time following something like this. So that's really the focus after an incident like this. And you had the Family Assistance Center actually up and running within a very short time of the incident. So you're laying out the Family Assistance Center and the Convention Center by 8 a.m. the following morning, and it was open by roughly midday the following day. So that's extraordinary. I don't know what the typical timeline is, but I assume that the full-scale family assistance exercise that you all have done played heavily into being able to have that kind of a turnaround and also that being able, as you mentioned, working with the emergency management folks to uh, command the Family Assistance Center also was a part of being able to turn that around so quickly? Yeah, it really was. You know, one of the things that I've always heard in trainings over the years is that the Family Assistance Center may not be set up for two or three days, and, you know, you have a little time to set that up. And now, looking at what we had to deal with, I couldn't disagree more. I think that Family Assistance Center, it's critical that that gets set up immediately. And really, you said 8 a.m., and and we were there at about 8 a.m., but we had people that were already setting it up and laying it out at about 6 a.m., which was miraculous. We had the support of the 
Clark County Emergency Management Department, and they they found a location for us. They were able to secure the convention center, and they started, you know, the convention center staff started setting it up. You know, it seemed like there were a hundred of them, and they were with forklifts and setting the whole thing up. So by the time I got there at around 8 a.m., it was already in process of being set up. And we had our first family walk through the door. I think it was around 8.30 a.m., which, again, that's miraculous if you talk to anybody in our in our business. And I'm not saying that from a pat us on the back standpoint. I'm just saying that from a standpoint that we were, we were very fortunate. We had so many people pull together and get that done. And like you said, then we had we were officially open at around 1 p.m. And, and we ended up having at least 4,500 people flow through the Family Assistance Center, and that's only because I think in the first couple of days we didn't count them very well. I'd argue that that's probably closer to 6,000 people that flowed through the Family Assistance Center. So as you would imagine, it, it's a huge process. And because I would think that the majority of people that would listen to something like this are in the profession, I think that you know what I would tell them is one of the lessons learned that just when you think enough, you have enough space for your Family Assistance Center, get about 10 times that much space and then you you might be close. So. It's something that oftentimes I think people underestimate how huge it's going to be. And, you know, we had 58 dead and we had nearly 6,000 people flow through there. So that's a that's a big number. Well, yeah. And I think uh, you and I had talked a little bit before about this, and that is that because of the sheer scale of the event, as you mentioned, probably 6,000 people coming through the Family Assistance Center but also about 25,000 victims overall being at the venue. This is one of the largest incidents from the sheer number of victims perspective that uh, has occurred since 9-11. Yes, I, I never really thought about it that way, but yeah, it sure is. And that's obviously you have to do some preparation up front and then have things come together. And we were lucky that so many people did come together in such a good way. We got through it very well, as, but at least as, as well as we could have. The other thing I was struck by in going through some of the materials on this is just the sheer breadth of the services that were located within the FAC. So it wasn't just about the identification, but it was a full range of services, food and child care, and you know, releasing the personal effects from the decedent. The, uh, FBI had set up their victim assistance unit there, crime victim benefits and compensation coordination, and so, so much more. Was that part of the planning that you all had done for the Family Assistance Center through this exercise, or how was it arrived at to be able to deliver that range of services through the FAC at that time? Well, that's a good question. And the answer is no, that's not something that we exercised with our Family Assistance Center exercise. The majority of what we focused on is that first part of it, you know, that first three to five days where we're doing the anti-mortem interviews, collecting information from the families and really trying to make the identifications of the decedents. The rest of that, our Family Assistance Center was open full bore for three straight weeks, and then it transitioned to a, another center that ended up being called the Vegas Strong Resiliency Center, which is a, a model that we as a community learned from uh, some other agencies in areas that have gone through disasters. But the rest of it, you know, after the first three or four days, that's when the rest of those services were really what the focus was. You know, we had just little things like you mentioned childcare. You know, the American Red Cross has a vendor that they come in and they have a whole childcare system set up with toys and 
a system to check the kids in and out so it's secure. And, and that's something that, although that may seem like a small part of it, and it is a small part of it, it's a big deal. And somebody's got to do that and manage that. You know, the hotels were there offering rooms, lodging, and the airlines were there offering tickets or changing tickets for people. Um, we had the Nevada DMV was there because a lot of people lost their driver's licenses. So they were there actually issuing new licenses. So there were a lot of those types of services that really were put into place after about the, you know, two or three days into it. Once we got through our processes and it, the Family Assistance Center kind of transitioned to providing more of those traditional services that people may typically think that happen in a family assistance center. Of course, your all's primary concern was to ID the deceased. And actually, you all had completed that job and ID'd all 58 within three days of the original incident. You know, that seems extraordinary that you were able to get the IDs done that quickly. Were you surprised that you were able to get it that fast or... Or tell me a little bit about the, you know, how that piece of operation was completed and successfully so quickly. We didn't have a certain time frame that we wanted to get it done. You just have to get it done as fast as possible and at the same time not make any mistakes. You know, the last thing we can do is make a mistake and misidentify somebody, as you would imagine that that will create issues that will be long lasting. So it is fast and in my opinion it's miraculous. And again, I don't say that from a you know, pat us on the back standpoint. I just say that from a standpoint that our staff just did such a great job and we had so many partners come in. We had we had folks from the New York City Medical Examiner's Office come in and assist us. They were there on day two and they were working with us to help us with some processes. We had four or five people from the San Bernardino County Coroner's Office come in and work in our Family Assistance Center side by side with us. And we had some people from Northern Nevada come in and help us as well. And, and many others, I hate to name everybody because I'll certainly miss somebody, but there's no way we could have done it without all of those people. And, and we had a, a little different scenario. You know, if you have a plane crash that yields a large number of dismembered decedents, then there's no way you're getting that done in three days, right? So that could take three months. They're still today identifying some remains from 9-11. I mean, they're still working on that. Here we are, I guess that's 17 years later, and they're still working on it. So it's something that it's largely dependent on the incident and what type of injuries you have and whether or not the decedents are intact. So that contributes to how fast you can identify them. But I agree. I, I think the three days is miraculous. And can you tell me, you all also established a couple of other things, obviously morgue operations, but also a call center for missing persons to be reported and captured into a central repository. Can you comment on how you all set up the call center, what the intent was, and so on? Sure. And there again, we were very fortunate with some of our partners. The New York City Medical Examiner's Office taught us that. We've trained and we've attended multiple exercises almost every year for probably the past 10 years. We've sent a crew to exercise with the New York City office. I consider them one of the, the finest offices in the country when it comes to mass fatality preparedness, and they've become a great partner of ours. And so we've learned so much from them. And that's one of the 
more significant areas that we learn from them is to make sure that you have a system that is one central point of data collection that can handle missing persons reports. So typically, um, the collection of missing persons reports is a law enforcement function. But the concept that we learned from New York City was that following an incident, the goal is to not have law enforcement collect missing persons reports, but have one central call center that you can refer everybody who's reporting somebody missing. You can refer them to that call center and there's a system, some sort of electronic database or piece of software that can collect all of those missing persons reports because ultimately we as the coroner's office or medical examiner's office need that data. So we need that data to marry it with our morgue findings to ultimately identify the decedent. So eternally grateful. I know that may sound corny, but I really am to the New York City office for teaching us that because if we hadn't had that, we'd have been working a lot longer than three days. I can tell you that. So that system was very successful. I I think that we um, were able to have, there was 4,200 missing persons reports. And had had we had a larger call center, there probably would have been 10,000 missing persons reports because I would imagine a lot of people couldn't even get through when they were calling our our call center. But to think that we collected 4,200 missing persons reports within the first one to three days and were able to have that all in an electronic database that we could use to our advantage to make it a lot easier to get to sift through the data. And that, again, you know, like I said earlier, the Family Assistance Center is usually a big gap with communities preparedness. The call center is one of the largest gaps. I'm only aware of maybe four or five jurisdictions in the entire country that have a call center set up with a piece of software that can manage missing persons reports. And again, that we learned that from the New York City office, and it, it proved to be very beneficial, and we were able to get some grant money over the past decade to support and maintain that system. And and there again, another significant lesson learned was having that call center up and running and where we could just flip a switch and get the call takers in there collecting the missing persons report. That was a huge process for us and very beneficial. So one of the other things you mentioned is that obviously you all deal with the recovery, remains, identification, autopsy every day of the week, but not at this scale, of course, either. So in setting up morgue operations with this kind of surge capacity, it is a kind of a unique situation because there's no jurisdiction in the country, not even New York, I would think, that can easily handle that level of need in uh, such a short time. So How did you respond to get the facility uh, for morgue operations up and running and managed appropriately so that you could just manage the situation? Well, we have a decent facility here in Las Vegas. It's probably about a quarter of the size it needs to be, but there again, funding's always an issue. Had we had many more decedents, we would have definitely had to expand our facility and build a temporary morgue was just right on the edge of of us being able to handle it within our facility. It wasn't pretty. It was something that was, I would say, very organized, well-managed chaos. And 
I think a lot of it had to do with just the great job that our forensic staff and, and our forensic pathologists have done throughout the years, and they were able to just take that and kind of modify and expand and scale it to what we had to do that day. And we also, I, I mentioned earlier, our locum tenens, you know, which is a group of doctors that come in and help our staff doctors, and we were able to pull some of them in to help us manage our cases during the first four to six days. And, you know, as you'd imagine, we're at maximum capacity every day, right? You know, put the incident aside and our staff are moving at a very fast pace every day, all day, 365 days a year. So when you throw something this like this on top of it, we've got to have plans to handle the cases that are going to continue on. You know, we had 58 victims and the one the one shooter so 59 people die all within that basically 12 hour period but what people tend to forget is that our daily cases don't stop right we continue to have the the regular natural deaths the suicides and the motor vehicle accidents and the drug overdoses and the homicides those keep going so we've got to manage our daily cases and then we've also got to manage the cases that came in all at once so that morgue process is something that again like you said John is something that offices have to prepare for and have a plan on how they're going to manage that surge and what type of processes they're going to put in place and our forensic staff did an amazing job putting that together as well. So one of the things that I'm really uh, impressed by, in fact, I think the thing that I like the most about how you responded was how you took care of your staff. You know, obviously people are doing an amazing job. They're professionals. They have to work with difficult cases every day, but this is a whole other scale to that. And there's all sorts of stresses and trauma with that. And you all recognize that early on and made sure there were services in place for the folks involved in your response. Can you comment on kind of how, how you looked on that and kind of the, the resources that are in place for folks in your in your office to deal with the stress and trauma associated with this kind of an incident or even more broadly? I think every topic you brought up, I keep saying it's the most important area. So I don't know what I would call the most important area, but I'm going to say it again. This is one of the most important areas. And, you know, employee wellness and the mental health of your staff is something that oftentimes as managers, we don't focus on enough. And frankly, a lot of managers don't focus on it at all and shame on us, right? But, you know, when you're drowning every day and you're nonstop and you're running from meeting to meeting or you have, you know, 45 deaths a day in your county and you're dealing with those, occasionally we kind of lose focus of the mental health of our staff. And I appreciate you saying that we handled it very well. And I think we, you know, tried to handle it very well, but I don't think we did enough. And I don't think anybody could ever do enough because it's something that in the first responder community that people are starting to focus on more a bit, you know, the police and fire and their mental health and their wellness. I think there's a lot of efforts going into that, but police and fire are one thing, and and I'm certainly not taking away from the traditional what people think of as first responders in the police and fire, but I don't think it's a secret that the police and fire, they have a lot of stress. They have a lot of 
issues that they have to deal with. But when you look at a coroner or medical examiner's office and you really think about what we see every day of the year, one of our investigators who is retired and now we actually were able to hire him back. Actually, before I even started working here, he told me something that I'll never forget and I think is is so true that we here in our office see every single day what 99% of the U.S. population will never see in their entire life. And when you think about that, that's a big deal. And to think that we're not going to have some wellness issues with the horrific cases and the the death and destruction that our staff sees every day and the stress from talking to these families who have lost a loved one, to think that that's not going to take an emotional toll on on your staff is wrong, right? So we've had wellness programs here. We, again, I would say that you can never do enough. I mean, we can, I don't think that anybody could say, yes, we're doing everything we can do and we've done just fine in that area. But then you add this incident and the exhaustion and the the issues that you're going to have to deal with long term. We've got to be more aggressive in that. And we did put some some things into place. And again, I never want to say that we did a good job or that we've done enough because I think there's probably going to be years and years of effects. I think it always has. When the, the smart people study these incidences that happen around the country, I mean, they're still seeing effects, psychological effects on the police and fire and probably the medical examiner's office in, in New York City following 9-11. And again, that's 17 years ago, right? So this is something that we're going to have to deal with long term. And we're always trying to look for different ways to help our staff and Unfortunately, you know, like police and fire, our staff aren't any different. They're so strong and they deal with so much that they're not always open to mental health services and wellness programs. So we're just trying to do a lot of different things to hope we can offer something for everybody that needs some help. And a big lesson learned for us and have told everybody that I've talked to about this is that they need to start mental health and wellness programs now, not wait for an incident because it's, you know, not that it's too late. It's never too late, but it certainly helps when you have that base down before you go into an incident like this or go into, you know, even horrific cases that we tend to deal with on, you know, maybe a weekly basis. There's got to be some services and some wellness programs in place to help the staff because you think the stress of the police and fire are bad, you you know, look at and think about what we in the coroner medical examiner's office deal with every day, and it's way beyond that, if you ask me. And So give me one or two examples of the resources that you have uh, made available to your staff for employee assistance. You know, immediately following the incident, we, we had some some quite a few group debriefings. We brought some professionals in that had some experience in that area which is another thing that I recommend that you know who those people are and know who you can bring in, which is something that we didn't. I didn't know who. We were lucky that we, we were able to get some to come in, and we did some what we call emotional group debriefings where people could just talk and share what they were going through and then, of course, offered the one-on-one therapy and counseling and psychologists and psychiatrists uh, uh, made them available for our staff, and those are kind of what we've been referring to as the more traditional mental health services, right? I think that's what most people know. One of the things that has been a little unique about what we've been offering here is we about, I think it was the Friday after the incident, so about five days after the incident, we started doing 
trauma recovery yoga in our office. And there's a group here in town called TRI. It's Trauma Recovery Yoga who came in very early on and started providing yoga, trauma yoga to our staff. And, you know, some people laugh at that, especially in our community. People like to ridicule non-traditional things because that's kind of the easy answer. But I'll tell you the yoga, and and then we also, on on the second week, we started offering um, trauma meditation to our staff. Since then, here we are a year later, and we've been doing meditation and yoga in our office three times a day for the past one year. We've been doing it every day, Monday through Friday. Um, We've been offering yoga and meditation, and it's not for everybody, certainly, and we don't make anybody do it, but it's something that you know, may help some people and may not help anybody. But since then, we've expanded that. And now we're we're providing those, the meditation and yoga to probably 15 or 20 different first responder groups here in in our county. And, And I think it's been very successful. You know, we've had, I just looked at the numbers. I don't remember exactly what it was, but I think there was been over 1,800 people who have participated in the yoga and meditation. And a lot of people won't go to maybe a psychologist to talk to them because of that stigma, or they don't want to admit that they need somebody to talk to, but they may go to meditation in the morning and take some time to focus and relax and get a little exercise and just kind of release some of the the stressful energy that you have going through your body. And, And I think it's helped people a lot. You know, again, it's not for everybody. And there's probably a percentage of the people that may hear this and think, oh boy, that's ridiculous. Why would you do something like that? But I think there's also a percentage of people that would say that it's a good thing. You got to do a lot of different things to try to help different people. And um, we haven't done this. Uh, Maybe we will, but I've heard of some agencies that bring cooking classes in just as a way to kind of take the focus off of the stress and get together as kind of a wellness team building exercise or bring massage therapists in for an hour to offer, you know, neck and shoulder massages to their staff to just try to, you know, just offer different things to relieve stress. So there's a lot of different models out there, but we, we, for some reason, just kind of ended up with the, with the yoga and meditation. And there's a lot of people taking advantage of that even today. And it's a year later almost. Well, I think that's great, and the, the the key there is is that you're trying the different strategies that are are fitting in with what your experience is, and and there are resources there for the folks, and you all have thought through what those resources can be and what you can make available, and that you actually care about that. We've talked a lot about kind of the successes and some of the things that really went well and were strengths of the response. So are there areas where you feel like you could have improved, you know, how you had prepared and how you responded to the incident? No, we did everything 100% perfect. No, I'm just kidding. That, that, <laughs> that of course, down. was a joke. But no, there's plenty of areas. I mean, there's endless areas that we could always improve on. You know, one of the you know, kind of chronologically, one of the first things I think about was our call center capacity. Early on, that the queue for our call center became overwhelmed, and when people called, it just rang that fast, busy signal. So people didn't think the line was working when, in fact, we were still receiving phone calls, but the hold queue was overwhelmed, so people couldn't even get through. So that was something that, well, we're trying to work on right now to try to fix that. And just the, I don't know if we 
could have done this much differently, but but looking back, we were very conscious of people getting rest and not working 22 hours a day, And but that didn't work for us. I think there's probably not a person in this office that would say that they got enough sleep during the first couple of weeks. And, you know, we're trying to think of how we could have done that differently, but that's very difficult. I was aware that I needed to go home and get some rest so I could come back fresh, but did I do it? No, I just couldn't. Not because I wanted to be a, a hero and work all night, because that's probably the worst thing you can do, but, but there was really no choice, and that's a lot of our staff. You know, you put them on a shift and try to get them to leave and go home and get some sleep, and a lot of them just won't because they don't want to leave their partners, and they know how important it is, and, you know, the adrenaline is going, pumping through your body so rapidly that you at least feel like you're functioning at a good level when, in fact, we're probably not. So getting some more rest and making people try to go home and relax, you know, when their shift is over is something that I wish we could have done differently. But again, we were aware of it at the time and we tried to stress it at the time. But, you know, even me, when I did get to go home, I would go home, I'd lay in bed and think about nothing but what do I need to do next? And 45 minutes later, I'd get up and go back to work or, you know, get up and start working. So there's some processes that now we know that, you know, just things like our facility. Prior to 1 October, we, uh, Our facility, you could, during business hours, you open the door, you walk in, and there you are. But Monday morning, October 2nd, we locked down our facility, and we haven't opened since. And when I say we haven't opened, what I mean by that is the doors are locked. You have to use an intercom to get in, and we'll, of course, let people in that have business. But that's something that that changed for us, that we had to secure our facility because we had all these people that like to call themselves media that are the bloggers and the conspiracy theorists, they're walking around our building at night trying to take pictures inside our facility and trying to come in the front door and videotaping our staff as they walk in and out of work. And, you know, that's stressful for people. And and frankly, it's disrespectful. So those people should be ashamed of themselves for doing things like that. So if we could have done something differently, I wish we would have better plans and and prepared for that part of it, but it's just things that we didn't really realize would be such a big issue. So I think we'll be able to prepare a lot better now and work on some of the things that we would have liked to have done differently or be more prepared for at the time. Well, I think that's a, a lot of really great perspective, John. I know that this is something that you and your staff and all the people who worked with you lived 24-7 for a very long time and something that will follow you around for a very, very long time in terms of your thoughts and and its effects on on you and the community. And I certainly appreciate you taking the time out to share with us, you know, your perspective and some of the things that you all did in response to that. And I hope that some of the folks listening kind of take away from that and are able to, uh, when unfortunate tragedies occur, maybe they'll be able to do a little bit better job themselves in successfully responding to these these kinds of uh, tragedies that unfortunately are still part of our experience. So thank you very much for being on the program. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. And like you said, the only reason I even want to talk about it at this point is if I can help anybody or even help our office to prepare better to handle it and get through something like this, that that's what my goal is. And I appreciate you guys focusing on trying to help other offices as well. So thank you for dedicating the time to this topic. Our guest today has been John Fudenberg, the coroner for Clark County, Nevada. We very much appreciate everyone listening in today. If you are a fan of Just Science and you like these kinds of podcasts, please make sure to tell your friends and colleagues. Thank you so much for listening. 
This episode concludes our medical legal death investigation season. Stay tuned as we delve into interviews captured at the 2018 ASCLAD Symposium. Please visit ForensicCOE.org to learn more about the FTCOE's other resources. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Thank you.